You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, and welcome to another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. We broadcast live from the Internet Law Center here in sunny Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. Please be seated. We have a great show for you today, and we're really excited to have a special guest. He's someone we've been trying to get on the show for a long time. Um, ben Cat Balasamrani. And he is the founder of Focal Law Group up in Seattle. We're going to talk to him a little bit about that. Um, but first, before we jump into it, I just want to uh, give a, a shout out and uh, a heartfelt um, hang in there to the citizens of Houston and the areas affected by the flood. Um, we, we, it's, just a, it's astounding, the devastation that's going on there. And uh, our thoughts and prayers are with you. And um, everyone be safe. And um, we'll put on our blog some um, information on how you can help people in Houston. So go to cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and we'll have information there for you. But um, Ben Cat, I'd like to welcome you to the show. Um, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. And so, Venka, I have to ask you the question. You are so well-known in this you know, kind of internet law community and in, in many other areas, I should say, and that um, the name Venkat seems to open doors by itself. Uh, are you at that heralded status that you, you like Madonna and Prince? Are you, are you eventually just going to be Venkat? <laughs> that's a good, that's funny and a good question. Um, I think... <laughs> Reports of my fame are uh, greatly exaggerated, unfortunately, and uh, sadly, I'm not at that point. 
where I can simply go by my first name. If you Google my first name, you'll see it's incredibly common. It's like Jim. Oh, no. People from India and South India. So um, I got a long way to go, and I don't think I'm ready to go down that path of uh, embracing just a first name only identity. So, no, no, you good question, your... but I don't think I'm there. You well, eventually though. You you spent your career mostly entirely in Seattle, it seems. But I noticed that you went undergrad at UCLA. Where, where did you did you grow up in in that in North Northwest or? Uh, I grew up in um, an LA suburb. I'm actually a Valley kid, dude. For better or worse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, dude. <laughs> Um, All right, he's going to go. This will be smooth then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, but I was just up in Seattle. I mean, I love Seattle. It's a great place and very interesting town. And uh, and you worked at a a startup called Urban Earth. What was that? That was a startup that uh, a couple of lawyer friends and myself founded at the height of the dot-com craze in the mid to late 90s. And our idea, which we thought was incredibly innovative at the time, and maybe it was just ahead of its time, was to have a portal, a music and pop culture-themed portal for urban uh, urban youth, essentially. Oh. Uh, that, was, that was what the entity was in a nutshell. We um, started it, raised some money, launched a website. In those days, it was more about websites and portals and apps. It was, yeah. And then... Um, Ultimately, the dot-com crash hit, and with that, our, our dreams of retiring as billionaires sort of were wiped away, and I went back to practicing law uh, shortly thereafter. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that era. Uh, I actually was working with a Seattle-based company, and yeah, they, they crashed pretty quickly. But um, it was funny because actually I was thinking about running for Congress as a successful tech executive, and that, and that quickly changed once you realized your, your company was closed closing its doors but any event um we brought you on here and so let's give you a little background about what you what you work on um you tell us about focal law group uh it is a firm that's focused on uh internet and tech slash media clients anything with an online uh type focus is what we're interested in and we do a mix of litigation and transactional work um, I myself personally, I'm pretty focused on litigation. So I've, I've done a lot of disputes uh, from kind of online copyright disputes, defamation, to scraping related cases. Um, that, that's sort of my my practice and my firm in a nutshell. And you, you also blog on some of these issues, correct? I do, yep. For the and past sort of five years or so, I've, I've blogged with Eric Goldman. Eric Goldman's blog. He was and, graciously gracious enough to invite me some years and, back, and I've sort of continued. And Eric, Eric's been on the show, and for those who aren't familiar with his blog, you know, it's his, it's, uh, his technology and marketing blog is kind of the main blog, I think, among the internet legal community. And so that's quite a, you know, a distinguishing um, uh, honor to have that. And so one thing you blogged about recently was a an opinion that came out of the Northern District of California on scraping. Um, tell us a little bit about that case. So it was a case brought by uh, a company against LinkedIn, and it was brought by this company called Haiku. And mm-hmm. 
it was a case where uh, apparently this company uh, had been scraping LinkedIn's public profiles for some years and LinkedIn had tolerated it. And somewhere down the road, LinkedIn said, no, we're, we don't we don't like this anymore. And they sent a cease and desist letter in high for, uh, for those who aren't familiar, scraping is using what spiders to could you explain the process? Sure. I, I don't I'm, I don't know the actual technical process, but it's similar to what Google does. And Google does what's called indexing, which is mm-hmm. where you through automated means access the website and you figure out, you know, what info's on it and Google catalogs it for other users. Scraping is where you do that, except you extract some pieces of information and you store it or you do something with it. So for example, you go on LinkedIn and you say, uh, you know, let's access every Bennett Kelly profile right. and figure out, you know, where, where they are, where they've worked. And that process of extracting info, accessing the, the public website and extracting information is what uh, scraping is colloquially known as. And so um, Haiku, um, is that, that, are they doing a play on ha- Haiku or it's just <laughs> IQ with a nature? Good. That's a good question. I don't. You'll have to ask the band branding folks on that one. I don't know the answer, but it, I was thinking the same thing actually after after reading the case. So it's so their business model is they provide um, data on potential employees who might be looking to find jobs. Somehow they did some by scraping um, LinkedIn data. They were able to figure out. Who might be um, looking for a job at this some point? Is that that's that a right. fair? Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Who's likely to leave sort of information around um, who you know who might be looking for a job, which might be or or potential candidates for a job. Basically, information of use to recruiters or HR departments of companies. And I guess it was it this use like ratio of LinkedIn posts that include the word sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know exactly what they use, but I think that's a, that's a good suggestion, I guess. Is, is, you know, um, I, I think you make a fair point. You know, I think um, you could theoretically ascertain that info by figuring out who somebody's connecting with, maybe, yeah, or what they're posting that's about. True. I'm yeah. sure they have some algorithms to, to kind of figure out that that metric. So they had, they had figured it out. It was working for them. And LinkedIn says, stop doing it. Exactly. And... LinkedIn sent a letter and what's called a cease and desist letter, you know, a legal nasty grant. Right. Says, hey, stop doing this. Otherwise we're going to sue you. And, and, and so, which is interesting. So their options are roll over, um, ignore it, or there's a third option, which they apparently took. Yep. That third option is to preemptively file what's called a declaratory judgment lawsuit which is where uh, they become the plaintiff and go to court and ask the court for a declaration that what they're doing is lawful and that they're not violating uh, a third party, in this case, LinkedIn's rights. And so they sort of, quote unquote, beat LinkedIn to the courthouse. Uh, I'm not sure what effect that has legally. Yeah, because they're both, it's the same courthouse, no venue advantage. And it's not a jury yeah. issue, right? So it's not like they get to go first before the jury. Um, but maybe they just wanted to, to frame the issue as irreparable harm. Exactly. And I think they were, uh, I, 
I haven't analyzed it legally definitively, but I think what they did is they actually sought a preliminary injunction. So ordinarily yes. in these disputes, you know, there's a big question of, let's say LinkedIn or Craigslist or Facebook sues somebody for scraping their website. The, you know, they may or may not seek what's called an injunction, which is asking the court to stop the scraping or aggregation while the dispute is ongoing. And in this case, what, what IQ did was actually ask the court for an injunction letting IQ continue the scraping while the dispute was pending, which, which is sort of, I think they could have done it as a defendant, but it felt sort of, it flowed yeah. more naturally as a plaintiff for right. them. You know, they complain, they're asking the court for relief, and then they say, hey, we, we need you to do something. We need you to stop LinkedIn from threatening us while this dispute is ongoing. But, it was kind of a gutsy kind of David versus Goliath move. Absolutely. Yeah, undoubtedly. But I guess if they lost, the, the, if the alternative was going out of business. So, well, they have to lose. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so tell us, in terms of scraping, you know, prior to this case, what was the general law on... If a client said to you, Venka, I want to, um, I want to scrape a website. Is that permissible? What would you have told them? The general rule is that scraping is always legally risky, legal pink suit or resting easy. That, that's my general answer. I think there's a kind of some tweaks, which is, you know, it sort of depends on a website's uh, attitude towards third parties and how, whether it has implemented measures to tell Google. Uh, about its own scraping, you know, web, mm -hmm. you know, some websites might say, "Hey, we're open for public access," and you know, I don't know how prominent it is these days, but uh, there's a there's a convention called Robots.txt, which is sort of uh, sort of a, a, a language that uh, websites can tell bots that uh, say, "Hey, these pages are okay to scrape," or "These search engines are okay to scrape." I think that's one question I would have is, you know, what what the site's robot robots.txt um, setup is. But regardless, I think the general answer is that scraping is risky. And um, there was a prior case, and there's a few other cases involving scraping, where courts have sort of sided with the website owners and have said, um, you know you can stop somebody from scraping your website in a variety of different contexts. And what, what, so, I've, what I've seen from the case law, and correct me if you think this is not a, a fair summary, it, it almost seems like it's a, it's a one-bite rule, that you get one bite at the apple, and then once you're caught, you more or less have to stop. Um, if As long as the... Um, the website tells you, you know, puts you on notice and actually tries to stop you from accessing the site. That, that's completely accurate. Um, okay. There's a case, there's a dispute that was cited in the in the HiQ ruling that involved Craigslist, where um, Craigslist sent a cease and desist letter to uh, a third party called Three Taps and said, "Hey, you're you're scraping our website. We don't like it. You have to stop." And the court said um, that letter was effective uh, notice that the website didn't, or the, the company no longer had permission to access the site. And any access after the company received that letter 
could even be considered hacking, which is, um, you know, sort of much more serious than and, a garden variety breach of contract situation. And that seems to be a major factor in this, I think, because these claims are brought on basically as hacking claims under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And going back to the days of um, Megan Meyer, when the, we had the MySpace mom who was tried on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for um, trying to violate, violating, was it, MySpace's terms and conditions, and they tried to make that a criminal offense um, relating to promoting and encouraging Megan Meyer to commit suicide. And the courts were clear that they didn't want to create, allow the authority of, to create criminal law in the hands of people like you and me who write these terms and conditions. And, and so I think that's a very, is a, courts are very sensitive when it comes to deciding how the interplay of what a website terms are versus what is liability under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Absolutely. I think you're right on. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few different ways in which this dispute has played out. One, and, and where courts have always been reluctant to grant websites power to declare somebody a criminal. Um, one is the one you know that you mentioned, which is a website terms of service where courts will say, we don't want websites to be able to say a violation of terms of service is uh, access of a website in violation of the terms of service is a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, so they wouldn't give websites too much power to, through their terms of service. Another is um, employers, similarly, where employers might have acceptable use policies, which I guess is a variation of right. a website or, or, or similar types of um, setup. And courts similarly have said, well, we want to be careful because just because we're accessing you know, ESPN from our work network and that might violate our employer's acceptable use policy, that shouldn't mean that that's that turns, you know, whatever you do into a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And and I think the the three taps decision sort of went the other way and said, well, a letter is different. You know, if it's a legal legal letter that says, hey, you no longer have right the right to access the website, that's less susceptible to, you know, it's just sort of clear and direct and there's no room for interpretation. But uh, the judge in this case decided to go in a different direction and said, um, you know, that sort of a scenario should not amount to a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And, and here, basically, it, it, they warned that um, that LinkedIn was taking a very broad interpretation. And if you view it their way, they said merely viewing a website in contravention of a unilateral directive from a private entity would be a crime effectuating the digital equivalence of Medusa. <laughs> quite right. li quite yeah. literate, by the way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Extra Absolutely. points there um, for the young judge. But um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you think of that, that outcome? Well, I think it's a... Uh, I, uh, you know, ultimately, I would have to say I probably agree with it because... Um, you know, to me, what I what I think is decisive is that these are also violations of criminal laws, which can carry some pretty severe consequences. And 
more often than not, they're used by plaintiffs in civil cases. And, you know, you might be able to tell a judge that um, no one's ever going to sue the U.S. The, the U.S. attorneys are never going to try to prosecute Q or its executives. But I don't know that that's necessarily the case. And I think, you know, some of the other disputes that you mentioned, the Meghan Meyer case, I mean, there, there's I think there's always this risk of prosecutorial overreach and to the extent the statute is broadly construed, that risk comes along with it. And um, I, th- I think LinkedIn, the, the other thing to me that uh, tips the scale is that LinkedIn tried to play both sides of the sort of search coin. And if it wanted to, it could have just put everything behind a paywall and said, well, you know, we, we'll, we'll have a search mechanism, but you got to log on to search on LinkedIn and everything's sort of behind behind the password. And it doesn't want right. to do that. My, my guess is because it wants search engine traffic and it wants a certain amount of public um, information out there so people can look at it and think, okay, let's, let's you know, we think there's a Bennett Kelly in Santa Monica. Let's log in and try to see if that's him. And so they sort of, they sort of sort of toe that line between being behind uh, a paper login or some other technological measure and being public. And I think they're the fact that they tried to lock out somebody from accessing public data is um, the court recognized that and sort of didn't seem to like that. And the, one argument that Haiku made actually was that in essence was an antitrust argument that LinkedIn was unfairly unfairly leveraging its power in the networking market for use of that you know for exploiting that data you know to basically make them the only ones who can use that data making an essential facilities doctrine argument which was you know somewhat right. unique and that and they said that that raises serious questions and so which makes you you wonder we're going to be hearing that argument again. I'm, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. I think that's that's probably the most um, scary aspect of the ruling for LinkedIn. My guess is is the antitrust argument, which um, seemed to say that there might be restrictions on LinkedIn being able to control access to its data, which I think could put LinkedIn in a position where all of a sudden um, just real limitations on how it can, how, how it can, you know, charge for access or control access or what have you. And I think um, that I'm sure that got a lot of attention with LinkedIn and its, and its legal department. And there's, I'm not there's an one antitrust other, lawyer, so I don't. I don't actually, I, I started don't have, my career as an antitrust know. lawyer, so I found that really interesting. And you know, yeah. I worked as a Howry, which is you know founded by a former FTC chairman. So, but uh, there's another area that is very interesting where the court kind of pulled its punch, and that's the First Amendment issue. And we're going to take talk about that just in a minute. For first, we have to take a, a hear a few words from our sponsors. Um, you're listening to Cyberlaw and Business Report. We'll be right back. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, so social the new and revolutionary way to easily manage and automate your facebook contest and sweepstakes create a fun easy to win contest by writing a simple facebook post watch your post go more viral and generate loads of interaction track your traffic and generate email lists with ease so social is mobile friendly and complies with facebook terms of service let so social give your facebook page some flash today zoom over to zosocial.com the best gavel-to-gavel -gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back, and we're talking to the, the esteemed Venkat um, of Focal Law Group, and he has been, um, he's also a blogger with Eric Goldman's um, Marketing um, Law Blog, and we are talking about the recent decision in the LinkedIn um, case that was brought by HiQ, HiQ Labs Inc. versus LinkedIn. It was decided in the Northern District earlier this month. And we talked earlier about the, how HiQ was able to convince the court that there was a likelihood of harm, uh, irreparable harm, and that it had a chance, a viable claim under uh, you know, the, that basically know that LinkedIn did not have a viable claim under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, and that potentially that um, LinkedIn's use of excluding them from the website also could potentially violate California's antitrust law. The last argument the court considered was a First Amendment argument, and uh, which usually only applies to government restraint of speech. But there's a California Supreme Court case that, in some cases, a private forum can be a public square. And citing there's a case, um, Robbins versus Pruneyard Shopping Center, that involved you know, allowing people to leaflet in a, a private mall. And basically, the court was intrigued by that argument, but ultimately punted and decided not to rule on that. What was your take on that? Well, I think that uh, the fact that the court even seriously entertained that argument was... Uh, surprising in that um, I, I think it would raise serious concerns about sort of what the what the rights of website owners are to exclude people right. 
and to kick them off its network that um, or would open up just a huge can of worms, essentially. So I think the fact that the court was even somewhat uh, solicitous of that argument was surprising to me. And uh, just I, 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 I'm surprised the court didn't just reject it out of hand and that it devoted as much energy as it did to seriously considering that argument. But what does mean we're going to hear that argument again, and so it it all you know, obviously facts tend to drive a case, and so it'd be interesting to see what that next case right. is, and you know, you know, judges right. can be persuaded. I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, to to think when I read that, I was thinking, wow, does this mean that somebody can post on a comment section and say, well, I'm here to express my political view, you can't kick me out under right. this premiard case that's a i think that's a that's a an argument that most uh website operators e- even the more um the ones who have a narrower view of their rights and powers would 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 definitely sort of um raise their eyebrows at Right, they'd, they'd be aghast, I would imagine. I mean, imagine WebMD all of a sudden having to allow political commentary while you uh, everyone right, else exactly. is discussing, you know, breast cancer or whatever. And uh, right. yes, I mean, it could be like autism, you know, vaccine. It could be any kind of crackpot theory, exactly. On you know, vaccine. Who who knows? I mean, you can dress up a lot of political commentary, or you can a lot can be claimed as political commentary, perhaps rightfully so, but. To think that website owners would all of a sudden have to keep their doors open to such commentators is um, is sort of startling. So when we started the conversation about the LinkedIn case, we we talked about generally what you would tell people about scraping and that it's it's risky. And um, does your analysis change at all now? Or if you Um, pick on someone, pick on LinkedIn. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I I would still proceed with caution. You know, I, I would be really surprised if the case is not appealed. Oh, it has to and, be. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, it's a district court decision. So I, I think it sort of depends. I mean, granted, it's in the Northern District of California, but even there, there's conflicting decisions. So my I think my advice is still proceed with caution, and there's not a lot of legal certainty around uh, your right to scrape a website so, beyond, yeah. beyond sort of the first, the first, um, I forget how you characterized it, but the, you know, the first bite. Yes. The first bite rule. Yeah. And so exactly. it will be interesting to see how, how this progresses. I, I would expect LinkedIn to appeal and, um, and, and actually so, so for, and they have to, because for the time being, they are subject to an injunction. LinkedIn cannot right. block them. And I imagine yeah. that, is very much to the chagrin of their lawyers and the management. And I'm sure they're going to say, you know, better do something about that. Exactly. I mean, I think the judge went so far as to say that LinkedIn cannot implement uh, technical measures and would have to remove any technical measures that right. previously implemented. And yeah. that, that's kind of like going pretty far uh, that, I, that I think would almost force LinkedIn's hand to appeal. And, and what do you think would happen on appeal if you were venturing, I guess? That's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that I, I think it's um, I would characterize 
the CFAA cases as a hodgepodge in the Ninth Circuit's in particular is sort of all over the place. You know, there's the no-sell case, there's Facebook versus Power Ventures, and there's just a lot of rulings that are all over the place and tough to really nail down. And so I, my gut is, it's just more, one more case to sort of add to that pile. And, you know, I, I can see there not being a definitive ruling one way or the other that, that sets bright line rules for both sides of the. So if you're, if you're David in this fight, obviously you perceive a caution and, you know, here you had Haiku, David was cornered. It, it had to fight. But if you're Goliath, does this ruling make you think twice before you, you really pull out the, you know, the bully stick to see if you can kind of push someone off from scraping your site? I, you know, that's a tough question. Um, I think that's a tough question and you got to think twice, but I think that, um, these networks generally sort of just plow forward based on what they want to do. And they're less, uh, drastically influenced by court rulings. I mean, to take the other side of the coin, I mean, look at Google, which sort of, which had to make law that, that, you know, it's scraping and it's, use of the content it generated through scraping was fair use and you know it engaged in a lot of litigation around it and didn't didn't take one adverse ruling and all of a sudden go back and think oh we got to re-architect our business right. model because we, we got one bad ruling so i think the personality and the dna of these big networks is pretty much to to plow forward and not not take one ruling and react ex, you know extremely to that ruling um, and so that's, you know, that's not exactly what you asked, but I think that's kind of what they're likely to right. do is just to continue forward. I doubt they're, you know, retracting a bunch of cease and desist letters that they previously sent to third parties or anything like that. So Sparta will, will, will push forward. <laughs> exactly. Yep, exactly. So, um, I wanted to end the LinkedIn discussion, you know, raising the first moment issue, cause it's actually, a an, somewhat of another First Amendment issue in in the private um, sector of context that's come up in the last week or two since the you know horrible events at Charlottesville um, two weeks ago and and that concerns the um, the websites and the domains for um, basically the KKK there's stormfront and Daily Stormer which have now, lost their home on the web. They, they, they have been dropped by GoDaddy and, you know, numerous others, network solutions, Google. Um, they briefly went to, um, it's almost like, what was it? Julian Assange and um, Edward Snowden, their travels around the world. You know, they briefly went to Russia and then, um, Russian, um, hosts could kick them off. And as far as I understand now, neither one has a home on the web, uh, in terms of a, a website a domain or a host. Is, is that what's your, is that your understanding or that is that is my understanding I don't have a I can't say I know definitively but based on what I've read that's the case and, and so even you know I think it was GoDaddy's CEO when he when he kicked them off he said um, you know I'm, I think it's the right decision 
but it, it troubles me that I can do this so easily. I could I could do it for any reason. I could do it on a whim. And so what happens when when that is the case? When it, it is, you know, I do it as a whim. I just decide, you know what, I don't like this focal law, law group or I don't like Internet Law Center. And you know what, I think I'm going to take them down. And and there really is nothing in the law to stop them because these are private enterprises. And so that that led, and actually it wasn't um, it wasn't GoDaddy, it was Cloudflare that actually dropped them. Yeah. And he, he said, literally, I woke up in a bad mood and decided someone shouldn't be allowed on the internet. No one should have that power, is what he was conveying. And and so the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which I believe you've worked with a little bit, uh, they had some, they were troubled by that. And um, the fact that basically a few internet intermediaries could decide really what what speech we hear on a on a large scale and that they they were troubled by that and i was wondering what what your thought was um i think that's a challenging question and uh challenging and complicated and i think it sort of comes back i don't have a good answer i think i'm equally troubled by that i should make clear i don't speak for the eff i don't work for the eff i've you know been counsel in case you know as pro bono counsel helping them out or local counsel or what have you but um and you're I not speaking for daily stormer either right <laughs> <laughs> shockingly no i'm not speaking for daily stormer either Although just getting it, it out like there <laughs> but you know i think you raise a good i think this all sort of also ties back to the linkedin question as well in the sense of um it raises the question of how much power more than the right of any individual private company to kick somebody off or, or not let somebody on. It also raises a lot of questions about how much power a particular company should wield in um, quote unquote, getting somebody online or keeping somebody online. And, And I think a good example is, you know, if you take Google and if Google says, okay, we're going to block Daily Stormer or not have them show up in any search results whatsoever, that, that's going to cut off a huge chunk of web traffic to Daily right. Stormer. Or if a payment processing company says, you know, we're not going to process payments. If all the credit card companies get together and PayPal and say, we're not going to process payments for donations to Daily Stormer anymore. I think it raises a good question about what their true alternatives are, and you know we ha- or or whether even they should have any alternatives. I mean, I think right. the answer is obviously they should have some alternatives uh, because they're just engaging in speech and you know getting something out there that we should be able to criticize it by pointing to it. And if they're entirely offline, we couldn't even criticize it, right? But right. I think it sort of raises the question of we have this idea of the internet as, you know, knowledge being distributed and sort of flowing freely, uh, you know, collectively and through all these various little rivers and channels. But ultimately there's always some big networks that control the flow of info or, or sort of act as the gatekeeper, right. You know, whether Mm -hmm. it's Twitter or Google or, or Cloudflare or, uh, bear sign or you know there's some big companies out there that could just say we're we're gonna block this company entirely right. from receiving a particular service and would that result in 
that company sort of just quote unquote being taken offline or being taken off a payments platform or what, whatever. And um, what does it mean about the ability of uh, a company to get online and sort of how democratic the internet is? You know, if, if I'm sort of somebody with unpopular, nasty ideas, theoretically, I should be able to use the internet, this, this sort of free medium of information to disseminate my ideas. And if, and if, one or two companies have the ability to practically silence me or sh- or sort of cut me off. I think it raises some good questions about um, you know the internet and and practically speaking whether it's uh, lived up to its promise of um, you know a, being a medium where information is freely disseminated, which, which is I think where a lot of um, people with utopian ideas about the internet. Right. So looked at it, which is, you know, you know, it doesn't matter if there's a Google or, you know, there's bad right. companies and, and sort of you look at Bitcoin and, you know, torrents and, and all these other or all ways of exchanging information and maybe alternatives exist, you know, to, to get your information out there and to collect your payments. But I think the, the Cloudflare decision sort of highlights that it's not so easy in and a handful of companies could probably control the fate effectively of a company or a person or an idea as far as their online existence. And, and that's, so that's pretty interesting, I think. But you know? it, it, it's not necessarily 100% apropos. You know, there is a net neutrality analogy. Since you know, this, this isn't a case of Comcast or you know, whoever the ISP is saying we're not going to carry this content. Because it's it's the back end, it's it's the host and the domain name companies making that decision. So it's somewhat you know right. different, but it's the same concept. And in yeah. and the advocates in that neutrality are you know basically have complained that Comcast and others have blocked you know liberal viewpoints or pro labor viewpoints, and and here you have a, a viewpoint that's. Um, or at least a result that's pleasing to those who support net neutrality by a large part, but actually is inconsistent with the same principles. Right. That's a good point. I mean, I think they both, they both sort of raise the question of whether the government should step in, which, which to me doesn't sound like a great solution either. Right. It's not, you don't want some admit administrative law person or, or bureaucrat saying, well, we think this, this content decision was, you know, incorrect or, you know, violated our our principles right. or what have you. And so that's kind of scary to me as well, you know, whether, uh, whichever side of the ideological divide you fall on. But you raise a good point. I think it is, it is, it's sort of in that same ballpark of, should private companies be able to control wholly, to, you know, among themselves what they do, or you know, where where should government re- regulation be appropriate? But the, there's the flip there's the flip side argument as well in that you know we're we're a private company we should be able to choose who we want to associate with, but you know, and, and I think what EFF and others are arguing is not that. Um, Cloudflare should have to carry Daily Stormer if they're uncomfortable with their content. But that Cloudflare and others should be um, transparent in their process and explain how they how they reach that decision. 
because in this case, the, the CEO just he was under a lot of pressure, a lot of passions following Charlottesville, and he just said, you know, screw it, they're they're gone. Uh, I don't want this headache. And that's not the context you want these decisions made. Agreed. So, I mean, um, I think even that sort of raises questions for um, companies because they often want to be close to the vest, and right. you know, maybe they make the decision out, you know, using an algorithm and. You know, companies are pretty protective of those types of decisions. Um, but that's, a, that's I think that's an interesting take on it as well. But even that sort of is is challenging. And it, yeah, and so it, it. I think there's a there's a lot of there's a certain discomfort level. I think in the result for a number of reasons. But at the same time, the, let me throw one last thing at you on this. Does it? Um, does it make a difference? And we may have to break you break before you get to. We'll, we'll take a break before you answer. Does it make a difference when the speech also involves violence? Does it make a difference right. when the speech is is promoting Nazism, um, which you know is so fundamentally against what we are as a free society? You know, does that does it make you know? Are there certain points when? We're not really just talking about speech. We're talking about killing people. We're talking about oppressing people. You know, we're, we're talking about some very vile things. And you know, I think there's been some leaks of the chat logs of the group that was organizing the, the event in Charlottesville, and there were talks about you know planning for violence and um, acting. You know, and, and there were a number of memes about running over um, protesters even before Charlottesville on those little chat chat logs. And so, you know, does does that different? Are are we now longer no longer just talking about speech? You know, are we talking about you know domestic terrorism? And um, so we'll take a break. When we come back, um, we'll I'll let you answer that, and then you can tell us about some exciting things happening in Focal Law Group um, after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Thousands affected by Hurricane Harvey urgently need support. Your donation can help the American Red Cross provide warm meals, shelter, and hope to these families. Please donate today. Go to redcross.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS or text the word Harvey to 90999. Your support is critical. We cannot do it without you. Looking for a white-label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white-label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. Is your website hacked? Is your website displaying error messages or loading slowly? Even if there are no signs of malicious activity, your site may still be compromised. Websites, like cars, require regular maintenance to perform at their best and not leave you stranded. 
at Fjord. Our website maintenance experts can help you assess which one of our maintenance plans will best support your needs. Visit FjordDigital.com or call 612-877-3840 and get the support and protection your website and business deserve. That's F-J-O-R-G-E Digital.com. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. And we're back and we're talking to Venkat, one of the founders of Focal Law Group. And I I threw a very long, um, Terry Gross-esque question at you. And um, so what's your two-word response? Um, yeah, that's a tough one. You know, I think that, uh, the idea of speech itself as violence is not one that, um, sits really very well with the first amendment. Yes. And, um, you know, when you say things like, I think there's a certain appeal, a moral appeal to saying, well, you know, these ideas espoused are so repugnant that they're just fundamentally inconsistent with American society and democracy. But, um, you know, I, I don't, there's no such exception in the first amendment. You know, I think the first amendment has some pretty narrow exceptions that, uh, the courts and the Supreme court has guarded pretty zealously over the past 10 years. And, um, you know, promoting Nazi ideology is not, is not one of those exceptions, you know, to the extent that, right. that anybody engaged in planning and, um, you know, activity that, that was a coordinated campaign to inflict violence and they were, people are actually planning on running people over. Sure. I think, I think there's separate criminal laws that get at that, uh, get at that behavior, but I, I don't think any of anything like that is, is, really sufficient to take a website offline and you know i mean the same argument you could make about a lot of other places and online sites that are you know they have a lot of bad content but fundamentally they're just it's just a place where people can discuss ideas and the fact that people happen to discuss some nasty ideas should never be um enough to just take take get rid of that uh, place altogether, and I think there's a lot of First Amendment challenges um, associated with that. So, but what about in the in the private sector context? The same, you know, the same kind of essential facilities doctrine type of speech. Well, I think in the private sector context, it's yeah, absolutely. I think if you know, if a if a company wants to, um, take, you know, delete a page or delete a website because it's um, you know, they have some narrow or acceptable use policy that the page doesn't comply with. So, yeah, I think, you know, the current law certainly um, allows them to do that. And I think that uh, it would be surprising to see courts right. dive, uh, veer that very significantly. So, like for me, for uh, example, my, my, father, my father flew, you know, 20-some bombing missions over Germany in World War II. And so the idea of people, you know, praising Nazism when, 
you know, my father and other family members, you know, fought and missed their lives over there, you know, that's kind of appalling. And so not that I'm saying the government should suppress that speech, but if that, that was my company, I, I might want that right to do that. Sure. I think that's, that's fine. And I think that that sort of, um, I think the law is set up to allow you to do that. But at the same time, uh, perhaps there would be other alternatives out there. Right. And, uh, you know, we'd have enough competition such that uh, some, you know, somebody would provide the printing press to whoever wants to, you know, produce whatever content is what others consider to be um, nasty and repugnant. That's kind what, of the theory, I guess. You know, the Jefferson, I don't know if Jefferson or Madison, the, the whole marketplace of ideas concept. Um, and here it's a literal marketplace. And has the marketplace of ideas essentially spoken, saying that, you know, the marketplace of ideas does not find, does not find that these ideas have merit and we're not going to embrace well, them? Is, or is that, yeah. should they at least be heard? I think they should be heard. And that's kind of the point of the marketplace is that, you know, it might go up and down, but people there's value to having it out there so people could point to it and say, yeah, this is terrible speech and uh, terrible thinking. You should stay away from it. You know, I, I think that the marketplace uh, assumes that people might point the finger at bad content and it might, right. you know, ebb and flow, but there's no such theory that says, well, you know, if a bunch of people get together and say, we don't like it, that means it's shut off forever. I think right. that's, that's um, I think there's there's some vitality to having those ideas out there because it's an effective foil for people to look at and say, you know, there's bad stuff going on in society. Let's make sure, you know, our our next generation is sort of aware of the craziness that's out there. You know, that's true. Yeah, um, you can't. In order to combat hate, you have to understand. What, what, where they're coming from. Right. And yeah. I actually, I actually went to a presentation at USC um, done through Errol Southers, who's a um, former uh, Homeland Security official at LAX, who now you know, focuses a lot on hate groups. And they had someone who actually, as a, a researcher, he went, he, he, he wasn't like a, hiding the fact that he was a researcher. But he just said, let me observe you. And they actually did. And mm -hmm. without an expectation that he he participate. And he's, he found it interesting, you know. And he actually had a colleague who was doing the same with another hate group. And that colleague actually went over the line. He went native and started participating in the, the hate group. And so um, I forget the author's name. But I'll put it on the blog. Um, I'll find his book, and um, but yeah, that by by going there and seeing what was driving it, how did these people get to this point? You know, what were the commonalities in their backgrounds and their education? You know, why were they so angry at the government that they felt they had to, um, you know, commit crimes? You know, the. Oklahoma City is a tragedy, but it's even greater tragedy if we don't think about why it happened. 
And, right. and and same thing for Charlottesville. You know, we have to understand why why is this happening, and, and how can we stop it? Agreed. What, what so if if Daily Stormer calls you? <laughs> besides, what, imagine that. And just just thought about that for a minute. You're looking at your <laughs> phone, and and the LED you know, that readout says Daily Stormer. It's like oh shit, you know. Um, and, <laughs> <laughs> so assuming you, you mistakenly answered it thinking it was uh, some daily sweepstake um, and they sure. said what what should we do what would you tell them you know I, I, I if you're asking me whether I would take them on as a client I would have oh to no I'm not asking that out. no yeah yeah but they said uh, uh, you know I don't I'm not I'd have to kind of look into that a bit more, but I assume they have alternatives abroad and, and yeah. no, there's a lot of companies out there that provide hosting and infrastructure services for, um, on a very agnostic or, you right. know, um, on a basis where they're, they just don't care about the content. And right. so I, I would, I would think they would, um, they should explore that route if they're not uh, already. Of course, you know. it, there is a particularly delicious irony in that what that means is ultimately <laughs> their salvation may reside in being hosted by countries <laughs> of races or, or ethnic origins that they uh, you right. know, are abrogating you know, against. You know, it's, exactly. Uh, um, yeah. the whole watermelon man scenario from that you know, movie in the fifties where the bigot wakes yeah. up and he finds he's black. Um, that, that, right. that, that could be an appropriate solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stormfront. Uh, you know, kind of soul searching as a result of it. And, um, you know, maybe some people see the light some, some people of their organization see the light. Who knows? What, what is the country code for Kenya? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. Stormfront.ke. <laughs> that that would yeah. that would that would be ironic. That would that would definitely. Um, yeah. I think people would enjoy yeah. that. So um, we're we have a few minutes left, and I want to give you a chance to tell us about anything um, you want to highlight that's coming up for you or for um, Focal Law Group. That's a good question. I don't have any any particular events to call out. Um, you know, I'm active on Twitter reasonably. I kind of go up and down. Um, my Twitter handle is sort of tough to spell. It's my first initial and my last name, V. Balasu Bani. You know, I think that's a good place to check me out. I blog at Eric Goldman's blog, and that's kind of it, you know. I don't have anything special to report and no particular activities. You know, I'm just kind of cranking along and um, I post when I can. And uh, have you ever thought about podcasting? You know, that's a good question. I, I have been a podcast skeptic for a long time, but I'm slowly starting to check out some podcasts and this weekend i listened to several episodes of mark maron's podcast are you yeah. familiar with that yeah wtf yeah it was, it was pretty it was good and, and the guests were good you know episodes and so i have uh 
I haven't thought seriously about podcasting, but you know, I think it's intriguing and, and there's a lot of, I'm always looking for good podcasts now that I've discovered, um, discovered it as a medium. So. I, I think I can suggest one for you. Sure. Um, cyber law and business report might be one um so i I would highly highly recommend it to you we were actually nominated um for uh, an award by the la press club for uh, best uh, it's a public affairs talk radio in 2014 so it's been a while but um we only have a few minutes left but i want to thank you it's been a thrill having you on and um, definitely check out um, Venkat at his blog, um, excuse me, at his um, on Twitter, but also focallaw.com. And we have his bio and other information on our, um, on our blog at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com. Follow us on Cyberlaw Radio uh, on Twitter. And uh, in addition, next week, we got an interesting show. Um, we have Laura Rosenberg and Jamie Fly. Um, from that's a really cool name, Jamie Fly. Sounds like an action figure. Um, <laughs> any event, um, they were recently at the DEFCON um, hacking where they were able to hack into voting machines. And so we're going to be talking about how vulnerable our voting systems really are. And so that's going to be a very interesting discussion. So join us next week on that. Um, but Venka, thank you again. Um, Everyone have a happy and safe Labor Day weekend. Enjoy the what is the unofficial end of summer and um, and all the hijinks that go with it. Um, but um, Venkat, we hope you enjoyed your your time on the show and hope you'll consider joining us again. The opinions expressed are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of Cranberry News Marketing and Cranberry.fm. Rebroadcasts or retransmission of this content without proper consent is prohibited. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.